Hey everyone, Dan Keeler here, founder of Frontier Markets News, bringing you more fascinating and thought-provoking perspectives from outside of your personal echo chamber. I'm joined by Matt Vogel, who's the head strategist and portfolio manager at FIM Partners, an institutional asset manager focused on emerging and frontier markets. Matt covers fixed income investments at FIM and also manages the firm's ESG monitoring processes. So we're going to be talking about reform stories, Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, Vietnam, and looking at what's coming down the pike for Pakistan, as well as what that country can learn from Egypt. We discuss sustainable finance, social bonds, green bonds, and the key takeaway, you might be surprised, Saudi Arabia is doing a tremendous job on ESG, says Matt. Listen in to find out why. Oh, and the next hot market, spoiler alert, it might be Oman. So let's get started. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about where the opportunities are for investors in smaller emerging markets. But before we dig into that, what can you tell me about what you're seeing regarding investor sentiment? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, I don't know if the market's getting a bit ahead of itself, to be quite honest, on what's happening with global rates and the dollar. But these are underpinning, you know, I think the, the rally we've been seeing in risk assets over the last couple of months. The market wants to believe we're at a peak in terms of what the Fed will do. Treasuries are very well behaved. Inflation or disinflation is happening now, and that is underpinning the flow story we're seeing into, into the emerging market. So I think the sentiment is clearly better than it was September, uh, August, September, when you know I think there was still a lot of chaos. But we're seeing that inflation at emerging market level is also peaking in a number of countries. Central banks have caught up where they might have been trailing, uh, been too dovish because of growth concerns. So that reset is also happening in terms of local rates in emerging markets. And I think critically, you know, and I, I think we'll get to this point is, um, you know, there's been a lot of adjustment in valuations. So there's been the adjustment in credit. There's been the adjustment in the equity space and in local markets. And so where you've had central banks, which have been more active in countries, which have seen adjustment, which has been accompanied by IMF support or some good policymaking, there are quite a number of gems out there that we could we could talk about. Just to sort of pull you back to where you said that markets are kind of getting ahead of themselves. How's that manifesting itself? We, we are in the camp where, yes, we believe that this disinflation in the U.S. has some legs to it. But I, you know, the Fed is telling us that they're not in any rush to cut once they've gotten to the peak rate. So maybe they only have, you know, their 25 to go in the near term. But they've been very clear and I think much more hawkish about their communiques on or communications on whether they would be cutting at some point soon. And the market is pricing you know, cuts starting this year. So I think that there's that disconnect. And I, I think that's something the market is going to have to come back to and confront because the, the, scope of, the scope of the rally has been maybe a little bit more mixed in equity space, but the scope of the rally we've seen in fixed income and EM has been pretty ferocious. Well, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about. Towards the end of January, we were seeing really substantial net flows in both equities and debt into emerging markets. I think it was in excess of a billion dollars a day, according to the Financial Times. Um, and so you've got a lot of money pouring in. You've got this sort of almost wishful thinking about the the Fed perhaps heading towards cutting and the potential positive implications of that. Is there a sense that investors are, you know, they've been on the sidelines for a long time. EM has been a very, very kind of out of an unfashionable story for, for a few years. 
Um, is there a sense that there's kind of a FOMO thing going on, that there's this fear of missing out if there is some kind of rally developing? That's a very good way to describe, I think, this move. It's uh, The FOMO has clearly been an active, <laughs> had an active role in what's, what's been happening. Um, you know, again, I think that there's clearly the sell-off was was so substantial. And, you know, US, uh, high yield EM, you know, the, the market actually last year was very bifurcated, right? Where EM investment, it was only really the duration which got hit. Uh, but high yield was a different story. So I think that, you know, when you look at uh, you know how strongly Egypt, for example, has performed um, in these last last few weeks, I think that does say a lot about the fact that the yields themselves are the spreads in high yield have really blown out over the next few weeks. Do you get the sense that the pendulum did swing a bit too far in terms of you know negative sentiment? The outflows, of course, were driven by what had been a very, very, you know, risk off in fairly indiscriminate move. Right. But, you know, there were key there have been key question marks. And, and clearly, you know, if you look at some of the weaker stories, which are distressed now in the EM space, although they're not a big part of the MB, you know, they they tend to get the high the, the headlines. Right. So if you add up, you know, the cumulative weighting of the Sri Lankas and the Ghanas, um, the Zambias and the others, it really doesn't amount to much. But, you know, I think that combined with the duration sell-off, which of course hits the performance on good credits, on the better credits, there was, um, you know, just a lot of factors which were at work to encourage outflows. Um, so I think that that, and again, as I said, in, a, in spread terms, IG actually held up very well in the EM space. So this is an investment grade bet. Yeah, it's the investment grade. That's right. So I think now you're sort of looking at the high yield space. And, you know, I clearly do not believe that we just get, you know, you can be indiscriminately risk on that the spread compression and high yield is going to be very uniform because we do have casualties. Um, and I think that those casualties are still getting sorted out. And, you know, there still are some in the works. Um, you know, so so I think one needs to be a bit cautious and cognizant of, of that. And, and I, I think, again, we'll, we'll start to sift. We're sifting through these things now. And we certainly don't take an approach of, you know, just, you know, putting the money back into high yield. We're being very picky about what we're, what we're doing. Right, right. Um, so this is kind of a stock picker's dream in a way or a, uh, you know, a selective investor's dream where you've, you've got opportunities that were beaten down by the general sentiment, but you're also avoiding the, um, the, the, the ones that are still going to face further challenges. Yeah. And again, there's some like the Tunisia's, you know, out there, which, you know, they really haven't participated in the rally. So I do think investors are being a bit more careful. Looking across the frontier markets generally and small emerging markets, what are the key themes you're focusing on when you're looking for investments looking forward from here? China reopening, I think, is going to be a very important theme and driver for performance on a couple countries in particular and markets we tend to like. And I think top of that list would be Vietnam and, and Indonesia. I mean, I have to admit, back in October, November, I wasn't the most, I was one of the more skeptical on how quickly this reopening would happen. I really thought that once they saw some signs of, um, of illnesses and, and, you know, bed occupancy, they would really shut it down again. But they really are letting go. And that that is really powerful. So... You know, we're seeing the sell side dramatically upgrade their growth expectations for China for 2023. And um, I think this underpins um, a better outlook for, for commodities going forward. 
So despite the fact that we're going to have some form of a recession in the United States and in Europe, um, China is going to grow and that will support commodity prices in what's already, I think, a fairly tight commodity market. And I think that Indonesia is uh, that one, one of those countries where it has an underlying domestic growth story and it's a commodity play and it's very closely linked in the commodity play to China. Um, you know, and it's, it's sort of, again, it's, it's, it had, it's, it had a fairly challenging year last year in terms of, you know, catching up in monetary policy space. But if you want to tick the boxes on countries that are going to be resilient to tighter global liquidity conditions, you know, Indonesia, I think really does fit the bill because they're running relatively low fiscal deficits. They have a current account surplus or balance. And now they get this Philip, which is uh, continued support for, for their commodity exports. Vietnam is different, of course. Um, but I think that, you know, Vietnam, you know, is such a darling for, for most investors who are in the frontier space for very good reasons. And I think the structural story there really hasn't changed. Um, FDI, which fuels manufacturing jobs, which fuels the process of urbanization, this is all still intact. FDI skyrocketed last year. I went from $19 billion to $27 billion last year, from 2021 to 2022. So effectively for manufacturing there, it reopened. And yes, um, although exports are being hit by global electronics demand, um, the key to the Vietnamese story holds. And it's being supported, of course, by reshoring of manufacturing into Vietnam away from China. But the real big difference, one of the real big factors for me in Vietnam for 2023 is that the Chinese reopening drives tourism back into Vietnam. And I think that we're talking about an eight to $10 billion delta in, in tourism to Vietnam. About 5 billion of that will be Chinese tourists returning to Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of pent up demand there. Um, so I want to ask you a bit of a philosophical question, actually. It's something that I've been mulling over for a few days, which is, I'm wondering whether, you know, think back to last year, all the focus on climate change, the focus on sort of heavily indebted small island nations, for example, um, and the impact that um, smaller economies are facing from climate change. And there, you know, there's obviously a, a wave of um, interest in whether the developed nations should be, could and would um, provide any kind of compensation for that. I The philosophical question is, has that focus on those smaller countries perhaps helped drive this rally? I know it might be a bit of a stretch, but I'm just wondering if that, just a little bit more awareness of all those other countries out there that most people don't pay attention to most of the time, may be helping to kind of fuel this sort of interest in smaller emerging markets or emerging markets generally what do you think no i don't think so um i, I <laughs> you're gonna crush my argument i i think it's i think that that is going to be gaining a lot of traction and i i do think there's a very frontier story about sustainable investing which is linked to asset choice and has a link to climate change um, I clearly think that the awareness of investors on risk has clearly gone up with respect to self-dependency, the energy price shock from the Russian war, the food price shock from the Russian war, 
it clearly in the minds of investors and of course the allocators to those investors is now increasingly focused on just financing and you know what is the way forward for these countries you know more focus for example on sustainable finance more focus on you know how much of their debt service is going to pay interest payment you know to pay interest payments how much is how much is going how much of their budget is being spent on health and education for example and so when debt restructurings are being thought of i do think that um that is something which will come more and more into play so there's a lot of attention being paid to economic justice at the moment and making sure that countries are treated fairly and that they're not being um, exploited in terms of debt repayments and so on. Um, obviously, it's a big challenge and it's one that we're only really scratching the surface on at the moment. But does that create a new theme that you could be looking at from an investment perspective that you've got? Um, obviously more money being directed towards supporting lower income countries. You've got more attention being paid to the sustainability of their debt loads. And that must provide useful information for you as an investor. Countries that are exploiting the opportunity to issue climate related bonds for debt exchanges, you know, these, these, there is a huge reception for this. Of course, we'll look at it if it makes sense, you know, in, this, in, the, in the sense that, for example, maybe all we have is green issuance in a market we like. Um, but generally, you know, you don't see a lot of juice and pickup to the conventionals. But I'm, my point is simply that a country which is compromised and accessing capital, um, there is going to be appetite for green. And, and I think that countries must do a better job you know, DCM teams, advisors need to do a much better job of encouraging them to to bring to market more green issuance. But, you know, there also, of course, is the whole area of, of social uh, investing where, you know, governments could even do a better job about identifying, prospectively identifying SDG goals, which are not about the climate, but are more about poverty alleviation. So expenditures in the social space, which could also be targeted um, and and wrapped into a vehicle which could be brought to the market. As a debt investor, um, if you see a country that's starting to access these this sort of pool of green finance or the social finance, does that make you more likely to give their debt, their other debt products another look? Does it make you feel like, wow, this country is actually working hard to kind of either rehabilitate itself or to improve its its credit standing. Therefore, perhaps that's a leading indicator I should be jumping on some of the other issues. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, ultimately, you have to have like this full package view on governance. And, uh, and good governance tells me if you're in a debt management office, you know, what can we do if we have a access to the market issue? What can we do to gain better market access uh, to improve our the diversification of our financing. Um, well, we need to look at climate change. We need to look at green bonds. So, for example, I mean, but I, I don't know. You know, there are going to be countries which are clearly going to be bring green issuance where I don't think there's debt sustainability, right? Or, you know, great job, you know, uh, love it. But in the overall picture of things, it still doesn't square up for me. So I, I think that, you know, first, first thing is, you know, simple assessments of creditworthiness, but yes, I mean, I think um, where you have good governance, this is this has to enter the playbook for for the borrowers. Mm, interesting. 
Can you give us an example of a country where that focus on green or social bonds is having a positive impact on its credit? Dan, we do a heck of a lot of work on the Gulf states. And, um, you know, Saudi Arabia comes under withering criticism on human rights issues um, and skepticism on what they're doing with um, green issuance. Uh, You know, hey, you know, world's largest, you know, oil producer. Um, what do you mean green bonds? I'm telling you that from a governance perspective, you know, Saudi Arabia on ESG is doing a, a tremendous job. It doesn't mean that there aren't things, other things they should be improving, but looking at those markets as many years as I have to see what they're doing and know, for example, that Aqua Power, which is a Saudi energy company, it's a producer of conventional electricity and conventional energy. I know that they have a multi-gigawatt portfolio of renewables they've executed outside of the kingdom. And so when the PIF, Sovereign Wealth Fund, which has a large stake in Aqua, says we're now moving to solar installations in Saudi, I believe it's credible. And I know that Aqua has a team which is proven and they have the resources. So I I can't say, I'm not going to use the words guarantee you, but when they talk about their solar goals for installation. They have the means and they have governance. And I believe that their execution is going to be really good on that. And they're very ambitious targets. In the social sphere, on the human rights issue, of course, um, they could be doing significantly better. But I also would have to say that um, looking at this black and white is and I think without attention to what's actually happening in the kingdom domestically, you're missing a lot. What's happening with female empowerment in the kingdom is amazing. It's radical. It's revolutionary. But for women's rights, what's happening in Saudi Arabia, so 13 million Saudi citizens, the female population of the country, their lives are significantly better than they were 10 years ago, significantly better. You asked me, how do you put together, Matthew, a view where a country which starts doing something on green policies, how do you price that in terms of like overall creditworthiness? Well, I will tell you that what the Saudis are doing on female rights and social liberalization is a major credit driver for Saudi Arabia, major credit driver for Saudi Arabia, accompanied by everything else they're doing on reducing the dependence on oil for the fiscal accounts, all those other things that they're doing. And uh, those who have recognized this, investing in the equities, investing in the fixed income, have benefited from it, most definitely. Yeah, I have to say you're not the first frontier market fund manager I've spoken to recently who's uh, talked about Saudi Arabia and particularly the impact of the reform story there. Um, Clearly, there's a long way to go, and there's a lot of challenges still to be faced, uh, particularly on the human rights front. But it does seem that there's a fairly consistent story emerging that uh, Saudi Arabia is somewhere worth looking at, with obviously a very selective lens. Um, talking of opportunities and talking of the Middle East, do you see any other reform stories in the Middle East that we should be paying attention to? In the frontier space, though, from a capital markets perspective, both in debt and in equity, we do have the GCC state of Oman. Oman for me, you know, we've been very large overweight investors in Oman fixed income for the last two, two and a half years on a re-rating story there. 
of course, oil prices have really helped. The tailwinds have been tremendous, but it really is a reforming economy beyond what's happening with oil. It's a, it's a market right now for equities, which is very, very illiquid and very small. But I think that's one market which I think is going to get more and more attention because I think that the next wave of the government's reform efforts is going to be capital market development, like we've seen in Saudi Arabia. So again, a much smaller economy, much more frontier in size, but one where I think uh, equity opportunities are going to start to appear. And you, you said you've been overweight a couple of years there in terms of debt. Um, has that worked out well as a, uh, as a strategy? Yeah, it's been a substantial outperformer to the index, to its high yield peers. And I think a lot of investors have sort of jumped onto that trade after we did, not because we did, of course, but we saw early because we had the blueprint from Saudi Arabia and we saw the political changes happening in Oman, both in terms of who replaced the Sultan, what the Sultan ended up doing in terms of the the risks of succession and also setting up an economic policy framework a la Saudi Arabia. It's not ancient history, but Oman had been investment grade. I think that that country is honestly on what they've done in two years. Um, they already are. I believe they're already justified to be investment grade again. But I think it's going to take you know, a couple of years for the agencies to to put them back to investment grade. But on current balance sheets, current balance sheet, they would be the best credit among investment grade peers which are oil or commodity based already. Wow. So I think that's, uh, you know, I think that's, that's, that's become quite clear to investors. It's just, uh, you know, there's only so much Oman you can have, I guess. And, you know, you need to think about the duration you're running and other things, but uh, that's an interesting story. And now we get the, the second leg, which is the more of the flow story, the financial, not the balance sheet, but the financial statement, which is, you know, expressions through the equity, equity market. In order to see that, you know, this is the fun of the frontier markets, right? It's rolling up your sleeves, making the trips to the country, talking to the IMF team and having the context, the historical context and the experience and the team. Right. Well, so um, talking of reform, obviously, frontier investors are always looking for reform stories. That's one of the key drivers of that performance. Are you seeing any other clear positive reform stories unfolding at the moment? Silence. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think <laughs> you can always say no. <laughs> I think there's some structural stories which which are quasi reform, jury still out, but maybe moving in the right direction. Indonesia began a couple of years ago to start making taking some steps to increase value added in the economy, realizing that. You know, they're sitting on on giant nickel deposits and that they should be a key player in batteries. And, you know, they started requiring uh, miners to they couldn't export nickel or could only export it in small amounts. And it required EV, you know, the Toyotas or the Hyundais, if they wanted to access uh, to do EVs, they should do them in Indonesia because the batteries would have to be produced in Indonesia. And that's now starting to, I think the pandemic sort of, of course, threw off a lot of these sort of investment plans, but I think that's now starting to, I think, become material. And um, I think, again, the the structural story for Vietnam, similarly, um, I think they could be doing a lot more, but the reshoring of industry out of China into Vietnam, it's an ongoing process. They need to do, they've done a great job attracting FDI. 
Um, the commitments are still huge in terms of FDI, so the flow looks really positive. Um, but they, Do you, you know, think Vietnam's a reform story though. That that feels more like a almost a passive thing. They're just receiving the benefit of other changes happening outside their borders. It has been. Uh, I mean, I think it's it's a bit dismissive to say it's passive, but I yeah, it's been it's been one in which the Communist Party said, look, we're going to keep our unreformed state enterprise sector, you know, to ourselves more or less, but we understand that you know we can ride this FDI. You know, pony. We have great human capital here in Vietnam. It's dirt cheap, and um, you know, let's let's go talk to the Koreans and the Japanese and get them to put plant here. And it has worked. So, I think that the next leg, though, requires um, more concerted effort and reforms from the authorities to, I guess, I'd say, push the country to the next level. So again, there's there's going to be a lot of reshoring anyway, but I think that to get the higher value added, you know, they need to think about more reforms to their tertiary education system. I think in the human capital space, they need to get to that next level, spending more money on R&D. So not just having assembly, but having more money spent in R&D. So Samsung has just built an R&D center. Apple is doing something there now. So it's starting to come. And you know, they've. I think that they need to look forward and say, what reforms do we need to do in the capital markets to strengthen our domestic financial system? And uh, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I everyone holds their breath on this, right? But I do think that maybe there's something they'll they need to start thinking about in terms of financial sector reform, doing, you know, lifting these these foreign ownership limits uh, to meaningful levels, so you know, more strategic investment can happen in the banking sector. I think that would be something really important. So I, I'm I'm a bit hopeful that in Vietnam we see something. This is going to lead to a bit of uh, some something catalytical on the reform front. In the near term, I mean, really near term, um, it still is all eyes on what's happening with this uh, anti-corruption campaign. Do you think that that is actually a helpful and positive thing that they're doing, or do you think it's a distraction that's preventing the government from tackling other reforms, or maybe even a smokescreen so they don't have to tackle other reforms? Obviously, there there seems to have been some some things that they needed to look at in terms of lack of transparency, you know, and and they're starting to put some things in place. So, for example, if one were to be concerned about what was happening in the property market and with land titles and things, the fact that they're putting in new regulations on property lending, they're putting they they announced today some measures on non bank lending to construction and how and uh, property. Yes, I mean, I think that the regula- regulations they're putting into place now on property and on some of these more um, speculative investments uh, is going to help. Um, the sooner the better that we have more clarity on, you know, sort of an end game and how how much further this has to go. And as you said, what the results would be from it are, is going to be important. Right, right. So I can't talk to a debt investor without talking about some of the debt distress that's been going on out there. Um, we all heard ad nauseam last year about Ghana, Sri Lanka, Zambia. Pakistan seems to be in the frame this year. What's going on out there? What's what, what's the bad stuff that we need to hear about? I think that what's happened, of course, is the this very, very risky gamble of opposition leaders to push out Imran Khan. Now, he very well might have found himself in a similar predicament, but we don't know. Um, but clearly there's been, I think, among leadership in Pakistan, 
with Imran Khan's administration, they were fatigued by the pandemic. The cost of doing the responsible through the pandemic, which they did. And then he had to look forward to the elections. And he said, well, I need to spend now. I, I, have, to, I have to recover. And so that caused problems with the fund program. And then, you know, the, we had the, the government change last year. And, um, you know, it's a bit of an unruly coalition. And, um, you know, they really have struggled to, to adopt policies. And uh, again, um, you know, if you hesitate on the IMF, if you give the market the perception that you really aren't committed on what you're doing, and that shows up by delayed and delayed and delayed reviews, the market will demand more of you, more yield from you, and, and yeah. or not finance you, and especially in this sort of circumstances with higher U.S. rates. They, of course, were also hit by the horrible flooding, higher food prices, higher energy prices, all these things really have conspired. And you know, now we're talking about a country which you know, has such terrible and difficult decisions to make, and there's an election looming. And um, you know, reserves have fallen below $5 billion. And I said $8 billion was sort of that magic figure. And if you think about the optimism towards the Imran Khan administration when they launched the IMF program way back when, which was just really just getting started before the pandemic, the view was we go to Again, in the IMF doesn't look at gross, but we can refer to a gross reserve figure of about $24 billion. That was sort of the, the target of the program. So rebuilding reserves from you know, low double digits to $24 billion with you know, a little bit of portfolio flows, IMF disbursements, some adjustments. And um, you know, how do we get in that? Because that number was viewed as, as like, you know, in terms of import cover, adequate reserve levels, that was the number. And here we are, you know, below five. Now that number is going to go up now because uh, you know, I think they're going to get this IMF disbursement sorted and they'll trigger some additional funding. But how far they have to go, and it still is a very compromised credit in terms of debt servicing that it needs to meet. So I think it's, um, I don't know if they make yeah. it, to be honest. So to, to cut to the chase then, it seems there is a default risk there. Absolutely. I mean, market's pricing a default risk. Yeah. So, yes. And you think that's a reasonable, you don't think the market is um, misreading that? I will, I will, I will uh, reflect a little bit on Egypt, actually, uh, when you ask that question, because I think that um, Egypt is heavily reliant on the Gulf investors. And I think that the Egyptian Gulf relationship, it's not the greatest, you know, I think the Egyptians, you know, they would like to see themselves more as a bit independent and more global, but the Gulf investors are no one's fools anymore. Um, they threw 15 billion at Egypt in 2015, and that money was gone in a year. And governance in the ministries of finance in UAE and in Saudi Arabia are significantly, significantly better. And they're just not going to throw money at, away at these countries. You know, of course, they're putting money on deposit. Yes, but there's strings attached now, real strings. And so you've seen in Egypt, for example, that, you know, they they put some money on deposit, but then they also have this other pool of money, which is for asset purchasing. And I think that that's obviously the approach now being taken in Pakistan. So if Pakistan 
you know, really does the right thing and gets the golf money in, then they can, they'll survive, yeah. you know, by the skin of their teeth, they'll survive. And, but I, I think it's very uncertain. It, it really is very uncertain. And Pakistan also has the complication of, of the Chinese debt. And so the way that, you know, you know, one thinks about, you know, how they manage that and what's fair and what have you, I think it's, it's, um, you know, are the Chinese, you know, I think the Chinese would be, they have been helpful somewhat in putting new money in, but, um, you know, they're not exactly on the same page with, uh, with G7 and, um, you know, we'll see how they, you know, I think, I think Chinese relations with Saudi and GCC have been improving a lot. So maybe there is some areas there that they'll want to work together for Pakistan, but it's a, it's a, it's a difficult one because I think that the situation economically has just become so, so fragile. So there you have it. Pakistan might or might not make it. Oman looks like an interesting bet. Social and green bond issuance could be a promising leading indicator for investors. And, well, the debate over Saudi Arabia will run and run. You've been listening to the Frontier Markets News podcast from, you guessed it, Frontier Markets News. I'd like to thank our guest, Matt Vogel, from Frontier and Emerging Markets Specialist Investor FIM Partners for joining us. And I'd like to thank you for listening. As always, you can get the latest summary of news from the Frontier and Growth Markets at frontiermarkets.co, and that is .co, not .com. You can also sign up there for our weekly newsletter, which will land in your inbox every Saturday and provide you with a smorgasbord of the week's key news from smaller emerging markets. The music on this podcast is What's the Angle by Shane Ivers and Silverman Sound. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want us to be able to produce more of them, please share it with your friends, your colleagues, your followers on social media, pretty much anyone you can think of. And if you have any feedback, we'd love to hear it. Send me an email at dan at frontiermarkets.co. And that's a wrap. Until next time.